this morning I wanted to start by sharing a little bit more about my own story, about what it was like for me when I received the gospel and it changed me. It was a summer before I went off to high school. Uh, I was invited to go on a retreat with my church youth group. And at that time in my life, I was a very happy kid, and I believed in God. Our family went to church. Uh, but you could say in some way that my belief didn't make that much of a difference in how I lived. Uh, at that time, I was very insecure. I was smaller than every kid in school, and I got teased a lot about that, and I laughed it off, but I didn't like it. I can remember looking into the mirror as a kid every day and wishing that I was different. Uh, my body was, was, was different. Do some of you know what that's like? Yeah. Uh, we went to this camp where the speaker was called Duffy Robbins. Uh, he was a very funny man, but instead of using his humor to tear others down, he was kind. And the way that I coped with my insecurity in those days was that I found that if I was funny around my peers, I could make them laugh, and that built me up a little bit. And the best way to get there was to find a kid who was weaker than me and to make fun of him, and I was good at it. And I did it even though I felt really guilty every time I did it. And it, and it made me feel better in one way, but it made me feel awful in another. Some of you know what that's like too. Here we were at the retreat, and on Saturday evening, Duffy unfolded the gospel for a bunch of middle school students, and, and he made it very plain. Uh, he, 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 he spoke as we all sat, and he said to us, God loves every one of you just as you are. When he made you, he didn't make any mistakes. I remember hearing that and thinking, I wish I could say that about myself. But then I started to believe it. I thought, what, what if he's right? That would be good. And it felt so special to believe that God was okay with me just like I was, even though I had a hard time with it myself. And then he said, and, and God loves you even when you're not the person that you know you should be, the one that he wants you to be. Now I was thinking about the way that I had hurt even some of the peers that were on that retreat with me, and, and the thought that God would love me even still was almost too much. Duffy said, the reason he loves you is in Christ he came and he died for you, so that every mistake you make, every sin of yours, he takes it away in Jesus. He, he wants you to come to him so that he can forgive you completely. And, and I remember hearing that, and I'd never felt what I felt in that moment, which was the most intense mixture of gratitude and relief and also sadness and grief at the same time. Like I couldn't believe that the one who created me and knew how rotten I had been would be willing to forgive me. It made me feel so, uh, so wonderful and free, but then to think that it cost him the life of Christ to do that, it, it, it broke something in me. And then Duffy said, listen, what he wants, what God wants for every one of you is for you to just let him forgive you. For you to come with him, come, come to him just as you are and let him in his grace take away every bit of you that you know isn't right. Because God wants you to be his friend. He wants you to be his follower. And in Christ, he's done everything to make it so you can be. That's what he wants. Oh, when I heard that, there, there was a part of me in, in, in the inside that opened in a way that had never before. It was as if my interior expanded. 
And I just felt so drawn and attracted to what he was talking about. And then Duffy said this. He said, to receive God's grace, you have to make a decision and you have to mark that decision. And so when I'm finished talking, I want you not to chat with each other, but I want each of you to go somewhere in this camp and find your way to be alone and pray. Tell God that you want him to take the center of you instead of occupying that from now on. And you want God to give you eyes to see yourself as he sees you and other people as well. Tell God that from now on, you want him to be the one who sets the path for you and gives you a purpose in life. It made so much sense to me that my creator should be the one who tells me how to move through life. And the thought that he loved me, well, it made me get up from that talk and go walking out into the woods all by myself. It was, it was a very dark night. There was no moon, I walked into the woods, I remember this so vividly, lying down on my back and looking up at the stars and feeling overwhelmed with the thought that God would love me just as I am. And I remember this praying that, God, would you take me? Would you take my heart? Would you be the one who's there in the center? Would you give me a a new way of looking at this world around me and give me the mission that that you have for me so that it's not me, but it's, it's your mission? And what happened there all those years ago is that there began in me a change, a transformation, which is still underway. I'm not there yet. I'm still changing. But it began a change that I think begins in every person the moment they decide to believe and to really receive this gospel. And if you've never done that, I tell this story this morning in part in hopes that somehow God would use it to draw you into your own wilderness and to look up at the stars and see his love there for you. And if you've made that decision before, I tell, it the, story, I tell the story this morning so that maybe it would, it would draw you to become a person who is open again to the way that God changes you when you believe, because you need to believe and cha- be changed over and over again. Can you admit that, that you need to be changed? Yes or no? Yeah. And over and over again? Yes? Yeah. The gospel, when we believe it, is the thing which starts this change. Not in God. God doesn't need to be changed. He's already made a decision about us. But what needs to happen is we need to change. Now, I want you to come in your imagination with me to the story in, in, in 2 Kings, the story of the lepers in the day of good news. If you're a visitor, maybe this is unfamiliar to you. I'll, 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 I'll make it brief. There is a city that's under siege by a foreign enemy. Uh, soldiers have set up their camp around it. It's the capital of northern Israel. And because they're surrounding the city, no food can come in. And so everybody in the city is starving. And, and it drives them to madness. They're cruel to each other. They, they go out of their own minds and they are distanced from God believing that it's God's fault. Now, I've, I've told this story to say that's what sin does to us. It separates us from ourselves and our neighbors and from God. And nobody in the city can change it. But there are four leprous men who we're introduced to in this story who are outside of the city gate and they decide, let's just defect to the enemy's camp. They'll kill us or if they let us live, it's no worse for us because that's how bad it is for them. And I said a few weeks back, that's how bad it is for us when we're trapped under the oppressive power of sin. Now, this is what we learned last week. As those men leave the city of Samaria behind to go out to the enemy camp, God changes everything by making the sound of an army ring in the ears of all of the soldiers in the tents so they flee and they leave behind everything in their tents. And so when the, when the lepers arrive there, they are the first to discover the good news that God has changed everything, not only for them, but for everyone else. 
And that puts them in the position of receiving this good news. And what we'll see in the story this morning is that receiving it changes them. And the reason I want to look at them is because I want you to be open to the way God will change you when you receive it. And as the pastor of Renaissance Church, I want our church to be open to how our church should change as we become people who receive the gospel together. Now look at how the narrator tells the next bit of action with these lepers who discover what God has done. This is 2 Kings 7, verse 8. Here's how the story goes. When these leprous men had come to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent, ate, and drank. Now, this is easy to read, but hard for us to imagine how wonderful what just happened was. They had been starving to death. You cannot know what that's like unless you've been through it. I've read some accounts of what it's like to come close to death with starvation. It's unimaginable. But here they come in this night, hopeless, and they, they finally get food and they finally get water again. Can you imagine what that would be like? Listen, when Jesus had people who would listen, he told them, anyone who comes to me will never hunger again. And even though he thirsts, he'll have living waters inside if he comes to me. And what Jesus meant is to say of every human being, you are starving to death apart from me. And only when you come and you let me feed you will you have the kind of food and water that your soul was made for. Does some of you know what it's like to eat and drink of that spiritual nourishment that God gives in Christ? Here, these men are having that experience literally for the first time. And then, watch what happens next. This is remarkable. Then they carried off silver, gold, and clothing and went and hid them. And then they came back. They entered another tent, carried off things from it, and went and hid them. Here, as soon as their physical needs are met, they see what spreads out before them, which is an unimaginable treasure. The, the soldiers had left not just food, but also riches behind, clothing even. In these days, a leprous person was required to dress in rags so that others could see from a distance that they should stay away so that they didn't uh, catch what they had. And here these men have new clothing and they have silver and have gold. And so their instinct is to go literally from rags to riches immediately by gathering everything they can, going off into the darkness and hiding it, and then returning and repeating. They lived in scarcity for so long, this wonderful turn of events inspires in them that old friend which all of us know about, which is greed. Do you know about that friend? Twice they go back and forth until, until this is critical, until it dawns on them that what has happened happened because of God and not just for them but for everyone. And that's what causes them to come to their senses. And here's where we see how receiving or believing the gospel actually starts to change a person. Watch this. This is verse nine. Then they said to one another, what we are doing is wrong. This is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, we will be found guilty. Therefore, let us go and tell the king's household. Obviously, there's more food in all these tents than they can eat before it spoils, and they realize that, and it makes sense. Obviously now also they think of everyone else back in the city who is starving and they recognize that they don't need to die because there's enough food for all of them too. 
And then they begin to think, what would it be like if we knew this and never told them? And most importantly, it dawns on them, and this is critical, that what has happened here has happened because God has decided to be compassionate to everyone. And when a person sees that, it changes them. You can see it in those two words there, good news. That's the linguistic clue for us from this story, that this is not just about a a random turn of events, but about God's miraculous intervention to save everyone. The word gospel in Greek, euangelion, simply means good message or good news. In the Old Testament, when, when that phrase is used, which is not an awful lot, but when it is used in the Old Testament, it's always to designate the miraculous intervention from God to save his people, Israel, even though they don't deserve it. And you can find it in the prophets that Israel has been faithless, but God decides to be faithful anyway. Good news. That because of their waywardness and sin, God's people moving away from him went into darkness and the prison that sin always leads people into, but God's decided to liberate them from this oppression and deliver the captives anyway. Good news. That even though they've become like a faithless bride, even though they become like a wayward child, even though they become disobedient and stained, God will not give up and instead would turn their crimson into snow, will have them back as his own bride, will hold them like a child or lift them like an infant. All of these images are from the Old Testament. Every one of them depicts the same reality, which is good news. The good news that God decides to turn every desert into a garden, that God comes in person to turn mourning into laughter and dancing, to put a song back in the heart of everyone who's broken and alone, to restore people to community and to to save those who are overwhelmed and put their feet on solid ground, to reach out with his own hand and to lift those who are are wayward and, and completely lost and put their feet on rock again. All of this is good news. Does anybody in here need that? Does everybody in here need that? When, when, it, when the good news dawns on the lepers, there are three ways in particular that they change. There's a change that happens, and you can see it in the story. And it's the change that is meant to happen in everyone who receives the gospel. And it's meant to happen in every one of you. And it's meant to happen in us as a church. And the first change that happens in the met is meant to happen for us, and we're gonna see this in the New Testament too, is that when someone receives the gospel, God gives that person a new center. That is, they go from being self-centered because of this new center to being centered on other people. Do you know what it's like to be self-centered? Do you know how you live in an environment that tells you that's the best way to be, but it never works? Even if you get what that self-centered approach tells you to get, it doesn't work. Am I right? Here, we see that when it dawns on those lepers that God has done this, it makes it impossible for them to go on being greedy and hoarding. It just doesn't feel right anymore. They can't keep on being selfish. The good news takes them out of the center and it puts God's there. That's God there. That's the first change. Now, with God in the center for them, there is a second change which comes about, and it is that they can no longer go on seeing as they used to see. Uh, Try to imagine this. For a long while, when they looked at themselves, they must have thought that each one of them was someone who God had forgotten. Given how bleak their life was, when they looked in the mirror, they must have thought, God does not care about me. If he's real, 
He doesn't care about me. He's forgotten me because look how my life is. And I know that some of you struggle with this kind of feeling. That's what they must have felt every day. But then when they see that God has intervened and and in good news has given them everything that's required, you must see this. It dawned on them suddenly that no, I've been seeing myself in the wrong way. God does care about me. He hasn't forgotten me. I have a place in God's heart. And immediately when they thought that, They thought of the people back in the city and they also began to see those other people differently as well because now they also were people for whom God had done this great new thing. And that's the second change that happens when we receive the gospel, we get new sight. We cannot go looking at ourselves or the people around us anymore in light of the good news. And then thirdly, when that changes for them, this change happens very quickly. They receive a new mission. And this is clear when they say... We, we, we cannot stay here and, and keep this news to ourselves. We have to go back and share it where it's not yet known. That is, they understand that with this wonderful gift, also there comes a responsibility. And it is the responsibility to bear this good news into the place where it is true, but not yet known. Where the deliverance means something, even though those who are there languish in their ignorance of it, even though they don't have to. Now those three changes, all three of them are woven throughout the gospel, each and every place where the good news is unfolded. In the New Testament, in many and various ways, the, the, uh, the Apostle Paul uh, and the others who put their pens to the task of unfolding the gospel, it's put in many ways. And I'll tell you this, as a pastor who's been reading the Bible for a long time, sometimes it's complicated and difficult to understand. Have any of you tried to read the Bible and found it a little bit difficult? Yes or no? Yeah, it's, a, it's like that because it's ancient and it's compact and it's dense. And so what I'm gonna do now is to take us to one spot, again, where it's unfolded, in, hope of, in hopes of getting us a firmer grasp even than we've got on the gospel, and then also in such a way that we see all three of those, uh, not just from a story about lepers, but from the gospel as it's unfolded in the New Testament, because I want you to change, and I want to change, and I want us to change in these ways. So in 2 Corinthians, that's where we're going to look this morning. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul the apostle, a man whose life was completely changed when, when he received the gospel, he's unfolding the gospel and the difference it makes in a very dense way, and so we're going to take it a little bit at a time. In verse 14... Here's how he expresses the gospel in one verse. Look at it. He says, For the love of Christ urges us on because we are convinced that one has died for all. Therefore, all has died. All have died, excuse me. In a very compact way, Paul is saying that God did something that changed it for everyone. Because of his compassion, he came and he set things right in the same way we've seen this pattern in ancient Samaria. And in each clause here, if we take them one at a time, we'll see the gospel unfolded in a very dense way. Look at this one first. One has died for all. One died for all. In those four words, we already have the gospel. Uh, That is that Jesus solved the problem of sin when he chose to die for all people. Uh, In English, the preposition for is used in three different ways. Okay, think about this with me. Sometimes the word for, if I say to you, I did this for you. Sometimes that word for can mean I did this because of you. Sometimes it can mean I did this in place of you. And sometimes it can mean I did this 
to benefit you. Okay, it's the same in Greek. A preposition can work in all those ways. Here, listen to how I say it and the way that I put emphasis on different words. See if this helps. If I say, I did this for you, I I want you to understand that because of you, this is what I did. I can also say it like this. I did this for you. That is, I did this in place of you so that you didn't have to, I chose to do it, right? Or I might say this, I did this for you. And that means uh, to benefit you because you were in my heart and I wanted it to be good for you. This is what I did. Now, the Bible actually says in very plain ways that Jesus died for you in all three senses. Okay, let's take them one at a time. He died because of you. When Adam sinned and, and went the wrong direction, the whole entire creation was thrown under a curse and oppressed. And all of us, in some measure, have participated in that curse and that waywardness. And the only way out of that oppression was for Jesus to come and lay his life down as a ransom so that he could deliver us from the captivity that all of us were trapped by. And he chose to do it because of all of us. Jesus died because of you. That's the first sense. Do you see it? I'm getting a little verklempt. Because, listen, these are not just ideas. This is what Christians believe God did. Also in the second way, Jesus died in place of you. That when everyone wanders and sins, there's a debt that begins to accrue to all of us. There's a legal record and it's got our names on it. That there's a, a distance between God and us that can only be bridged by some kind of sacrifice. But what God decided to do in Jesus is to lay his life down so that there would be an atoning sacrifice for our sins, so that someone would die in our place, so that the guilt could be taken from us and go on to someone else. Jesus died in place of us. That's the second way the Bible teaches it. Do you see it? And then to benefit us, that we were lost and alone and that was not okay with God, and in order to make us children of his and a part of his family, embraced by his loving community, he died for us that we were confused in the dark and there was no way to find our way out, but he came, the the light came into the dark, even though the dark wouldn't receive him. He came, but the dark could not overcome the light and he shined this light so that we could be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light to, to benefit us in just that way. There's a seat at the table for us because he died for us. There's everything we could ever need. It's all been provided. Jesus died to benefit you too. All three of those ways describe the gospel, how he died for you. It's good, isn't it? It's so good. It's such good news. Now, because of that, and and here's the second clause in this one phrase, because of that, the gospel says that because Jesus did that, even, even people who don't know about it or won't believe it or have no idea, or resist it, or are just full of doubt, and will never believe it. Even for them, there has been a change which came about. Because the gospel does not announce a possibility first. It announces an actuality, that something happened. And that's why there's this strong language in this next clause. Look at it. Therefore, all have died. Now, any person who's just reading strictly logically will say that is a non sequitur. Just because one died for all, how does that entail the death of all? That doesn't make sense logically. Paul is operating from a spiritual perspective here, which does not mean it's not real. It's it's real in a different way, and we all know this. There's more reality than that which can be measured with a microscope. Here he's saying, when, when Jesus died for all, every person was objectively 
in him on the cross in such a way that their old self also was crucified and put to death. How can God do that? God is outside of time. Uh, yesterday, now, and forever is all equally present to God. And in some measure by his grace, he took the old you and nailed that to the cross when Jesus died. Do you know what I mean by the old you? The one that you're, you're scandalized that, that that part of you still emerges from time to time. That, Paul would say, is you exhuming that old you from the grave and pretending that that's real life. It's not you. But, but many of us, in ignorance of God's grace for us, we constantly are putting that false dead us in front. And that's not who we are. But, but the old one died, and that's what happened when Jesus went to the cross for everyone. Now, that raises a question for the person who's wondering, why would God do such a thing if it did indeed cost him his own life? If in Christ he gave himself for us, why would he do that? Well, that question is answered, and it's also the foundation of the gospel, the love of Christ. That's the third clause there. And, and without this being all the way at the bottom upon which every other idea is built, without it, it's not the Christian gospel. But with it, with the, with the news that says, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he gave his only son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Or, or without this news that says, rarely will someone dare to die for a good person, though perhaps for a righteous person someone might dare to die, but God proves his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. All of these ways um, reinforce this third element of the gospel, which is that God's love is what motivated him to rescue us and the whole world. That his love is for us, and because of that, we are utterly rescued. Here, here's the gospel in these three clauses, which is beneath the pattern of events in Samaria. It is that God's compassion moved him to set things right through the death of Jesus for all. And, and, and that, in a, in a manner, has real implications for everyone without any assistance on their part. Now, as soon as a person receives this, there begins a transformation. And here, here, is what, uh, here is what we saw in those lepers. And if you remember, when they saw what God had done, the changes begin. And the truth here in, in the gospel, which Paul also unfolds here in Corinthians, is that the moment someone receives this and believes what God has done, a change also comes about in them. And you know it, that you need a change. And I do too. Even as we've believed already, we need to be reminded again of the gospel so that we can change. And all three... All three of the ways the lepers change are here in 2 Corinthians for us. And that is when we receive the gospel, the first change that begins, don't, don't show it yet. Would you try to guess? Or you re, I, I never do like audience participation, but let's try that. Can we try that this morning? What was the first change that happens? New center. Thank you very, very much for rescuing me. A new center. And that's the first thing that does change when you receive this. It is that you stop being all about you because it just doesn't seem right anymore. When you receive what God did at his own expense, it just feels wrong. And that's, that's because the gospel wants a new center for you. Look at how it's put in verse 15 of 2 Corinthians 5. This is magnificent. And he died for all so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. It's, it's where Paul says, this is why God did this in Jesus. 
because he saw all of us living for ourselves and the dead end and the misery that that causes all over planet Earth, not only for the people who are living for themselves, but all of the people who are negatively affected by us when we're self-centered. And, and the way that God solves that is giving himself and then occupying the central part of us as we receive the good news so that we get this new center and it's no longer us who are there in the center, but instead it's the Lord in the center so that an insecure 13-year-old doesn't choose to tear down others to feel better about himself, but instead is, is able to see others and think, what is the best thing for them instead of how do I solve my own problem? And, and whoever you are, however old you are, you are in many ways like an, an insecure 13-year-old still. I'm talking to myself, first of all. But so are you, aren't you? And, and the gospel comes and, and it, it says, no longer are you going to live for yourself. You're not going to let your own drives and your own impulses and desires uh, always be the thing which serves your self-interest. Instead, you're going to stop and you're going to live in a different way because that's why Jesus died and rose again for you so that you would live for him. And do you notice it says, so that those who might live? Paul uses the subjunctive voice here because it's possible to go on pretending you're that dead person who died on the cross, but you shouldn't. You shouldn't. Instead, you should let that one stay in the grave where he belongs, where she belongs, and then you should live for Jesus. And, and with that new center, then you're someone who receives the gospel and lets it have the change that it's meant to have in you. When you have him in the center, you can't help but put others first. That's why, listen, think about this. If Jesus is in the center of you, the reason you always want to put others first is because Jesus is God putting others first. Let that thought sink in for a moment. Jesus is God living for other people. And if he's in the center of your heart, how can you do anything other than that but live for others? And that's exactly what he wants. That new center is the first thing. If you will let that happen in you, if you will decide, I'm gonna stop being so possessive and be generous because I'm letting Jesus be here. I'm not gonna always put my own interests first, but put the interests of others. I'm not gonna work all the time at making myself understood. I'm gonna try to understand other people. I'm not gonna always be advancing my reputation. I'm gonna be trying to make other people look good. If you do that, then another change that comes about in you is the second one, which is that you get new sight. Because a person who has Jesus in the center and is not there anymore cannot help but see things differently from now on. And that, that is a second gift that, that Paul also unfolds in 2 Corinthians. Look at verse 16. He says this, From now on, therefore, that is because of this new center of living for him, we no longer, excuse me, we regard no one from a human point of view, even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view. We know him no longer in that way. Uh, that is a, a poetic and an autobiographical way of saying that the gospel gives a person new sight. It's autobiographical because when Paul first heard about Jesus, he was a Jewish person who was persecuting followers of Jesus because he saw Jesus and believed Jesus was an enemy, was someone who was uh, thwarting God's good purposes for God's people. But then when Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, his whole life was turned upside down when he realized, no, Jesus is the Lord and Savior who conquered death for me and everyone. And then Paul had a new sight which changed the way he live in the world altogether. And he became someone who saw himself and other people just as he saw Jesus differently from then on. Listen, you cannot receive the gospel without also having new sight. And here I want to tell you two details in particular. First of all, for yourself. When I accept that I am loved by God, which is what the gospel tells me, 
then from now on, I am challenged to look at myself as intrinsically valuable, just as I am. I am challenged to know that not because of what I do, but because of what God did for me, that I should look at myself differently from now on. And then, if I believe it, every question of my self-worth is answered for me definitively, and I can rest secure that the one and only person who has authority to judge my value has definitively pronounced his verdict when he gave himself to rescue me in his son, Jesus Christ. That's God's declaration of my self-worth from now on. You are invited to have that sight for you. And with these eyes, you no longer need to grasp and strive, but you can become someone who relaxes before God and simply receives. You can open your hands gratefully and simply accept what God gives. No more working to make yourself lovable. You can become a person who is through and through grateful. That's the new sight and how it changes you. Now, if it changes you in that way, it will always change you in the second way. It will give you new sight for other people around you too. And if it doesn't give you new sight for them, it hasn't given you new sight for yourself yet. That is, each and every person around you, regardless of his attitude toward God, is going to be presented to you according to a new way of seeing. Now listen here, I want to teach you this Greek. You see the phrase, a human point of view there? In Greek, it's kata sarka. And the word sarka or sarks is the Greek word for flesh. And kata means according to. The old way of seeing is according to the flesh. And when you see according to the flesh, then you measure value and worth in, in the same way that everyone else does. But what Paul saw is that when he believed and trusted that God gave himself for the world where? On the cross, that this gives new vision, which is no longer katasarka, according to flesh, but instead is according to something different. And if you're thinking according to the spirit, almost, it's actually more concrete than that, according to the cross. Which means when I look at that other person, I am invited to see them according to the cross too. So that the most important thing about them in my eyes from now on is not what they think about God, but what God thinks about them. And that answer is also given for me at the cross. And so if I look at everyone according to the cross, that means there is a seat for everyone. There is room for every person. The door is wide open for absolutely everyone, even the person who is hateful to me. And I know, I know you because you've let me be your pastor that some of you have people in your lives who are hateful to you because of the way they've treated you. And you're not supposed to think that's okay what they did, but you are challenged by the new sight which the gospel gives to see them according to the cross and according to the flesh no longer. And if we'll see all people in that way, not only will it change us and the way that we relate to them, it'll change us as a church as, as well. And it means this, imagine now that every person who is in sin and oppressed and, and in transgression and loving it, they're like those people back in the city of Samaria who are, are languishing and starving because they're far away from God. The gospel gives us eyes to see that there is a feast that has been set by the one who is the host of the spiritual feast that saves us. And he is the head of the banquet. And he says to us, I have set enough food for everyone. And I've, hold, I've held the door open for them too. And I did that by giving my life for all of them. And so now go. And everyone you see, I want you to see with eyes, not eyes that say, as long as they believe this or think this or change in this way, then maybe the host will be willing to extend an invitation to them as well. But rather he's died so that there is a seat for them. And it's just waiting. And listen, if you know someone in your life who doesn't believe and you wish that they would, and you wonder how God thinks of them, take the gospel sight for them. He is the host who can't wait for them to come and eat. 
And what he's waiting for, and this is the third bit of new vision that the gospel gives us, which is our new mission. It is for us to become people who go and tell them that the seat has been prepared and, and whenever they're ready, they can come. Because the only difference between them and us is that they've not seen yet, by God's grace, we've been given to see. We've been given to see this. Here's how the gospel uh, is, is unfolded. And this is the last bit for now. <clears throat> in verse 17, Paul writes this. So if anyone is in Christ, that is if someone decides to trust him and put her heart, his heart into Christ's hands, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. That is another expression of the gospel. And even if you're thinking, no, no, my life is still broken and messy just like it used to be. Yes, that's true. But everything comes down to whether you are willing to see the new eyes for you. You are the new creation and how you see what's around you changes it. And Paul goes, on to write this in verse 18. All of this is from God. That is no anxiety on you. You don't have to do anything. God did this. Who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And, and that is that God was not uh, troubled any longer with the world. God didn't need to reconcile himself. He reconciled the world that was broken and messy. And he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. Watch this. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That's gospel again. And entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. There, in a very dense phrase, is our mission. The message of reconciliation. That is the good news that the enemy has been vanquished and there's more than enough food. And it's time to get about the business of receiving God's grace. You, you should believe. You should receive it and accept it. You should let this truth change who's at the center and how you see everything. And then what your new mission is. You should do that individually. And as your pastor, I want you to understand my sense of my calling for Renaissance Church it's not only to challenge and push and, and encourage you to have that new, new vision through the gospel, but it's to help our church become a church that has this mission together, to go and tell. And that's what we'll talk about next week. It's how we have this joyous and glad gift of bearing a message, not making something happen. We're not called to go reconcile. We're called to bear a message. And that's our invitation. My, my great hope this morning is that someone or all of us would have been placed by God's grace through what I've shared before the good news again and that we would open ourselves to it like I did as that 13-year-old kid and become, and become a participant in that transformation that God's at work doing. So can I pray to that end with you? Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for the good news. And I thank you for the chance this morning to learn together about the difference that it makes to believe it. I thank you for the ways that over and over again you come to where we are to meet us and through the power of your gracious spirit to open our hearts to be receptive again to the truth of how you've delivered us and rescued us and not just us but the whole world in Christ. Now this morning, would you move in our hearts and, uh, and, and make that transformation happen maybe for the first time or more profoundly than ever again in us, that you would draw us forward and help us move out of the center and have new eyes and then accept the mission that you give us. And I pray for this, for the sake of the world, which largely is still starving in spiritual poverty because no one has yet convincingly shown them the good news. Help us be a church that does that well. 
Uh, but this morning, especially help us receive that good news. In Jesus, we pray. Amen.